Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 18th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Very pleased to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, It's Your Source Each Friday, for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show regards an electoral result of statewide consequence in the area of criminal law and an appellate ruling that stands to raise the allowable limit of punitive damages in insurance bad faith claims. First, Mitchell Keeter, the Keeter Appellate Law Group, will tell us why last week's passage of Proposition 57, a ballot initiative that garnered nearly two-thirds of the electorate's support, stands to threaten public safety, the proper administration of criminal justice, and in his words, even fundamental notions of democracy. The measure makes eligible for parole a certain class of California inmates convicted of nonviolent crimes and who have completed their base sentences. Mr. Keeter contends that many crimes categorized as nonviolent are anything but, and thus that the measure could release a decidedly dangerous set of inmates. Mr. Keeter also worries that a separate provision under the initiative, one that introduces more opportunities for inmates to earn rehabilitative good behavior credits, could allow the state's most violent offenders, including those convicted of homicide, to unduly lessen their sentences. In addition to discussing what he views as the proposition's fatal flaws, Mr. Keeter will also consider the potential appellate challenges to the measure certain to find their way into courts and how they might fare. Then, Royal Oaks of Hinshaw and Culbertson discusses the case of Nickerson v. Stonebridge Life Insurance Company, which raises the allowable limit of punitive damages in insurance bad faith claims by deciding that attorney's fees in such matters called Brant fees should be included in awarded compensatory damages. Since punitive damages are regarded as constitutional by state and federal courts up to roughly 10 times a compensatory award, the inclusion of Brandt fees in the denominator of that punitive compensatory ratio will give juries slightly more latitude when it comes to punitive awards. Here, the inclusion of the Brandt fees raised a $350,000 award to over $470,000. Interestingly, the original jury in the case awarded the plaintiff $19 million before the trial court reduced that award to $350,000, 10 times the $35,000 compensatory amount. Before we get to my guests, let me first, as always, remind you that CLE credit is available for your having tuned into this program. There should be a link to a short true-false test at the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Find that and one hour of CLE credit can be yours. Now, without any further ado, let's hear from my first guest, Mitchell Keeter, on the ballot measure passed last week, Proposition 57. We're joined now by Mitchell Keeter, a certified appellate specialist practicing at the Keeter Appellate Law Firm in Beverly Hills. Mr. Keeter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you penned an opinion piece in the Daily Journal last Monday, the day before Election Day, voicing your concerns over ballot Proposition 57, which, since that opinion piece was published, has passed. Before I wasn't into, very effective, I guess. <laughs> apparently not. Um, but before we get uh, into your specific concerns over the proposition, I'd, I'd like to uh, to lay out its component parts. And I believe there's essentially three pieces that we'll, we'll need to regard, some in, in different amounts of depth. First, there's a a portion dealing with juvenile justice and juvenile criminal defendants and instituting a change in the welfare and institutions code allowing judges rather than prosecutors to decide whether uh, such defendants should be tried as juveniles or adults, correct? That's correct. Okay. And then the other two pieces deal not with juvenile defendants, but already imprisoned felony convicts. And one piece allows for parole consideration for a certain class of those inmates, ones who are convicted of, of nominally nonviolent crimes and who have 
completed a certain portion of their sentence, I believe, uh, their base sentence, excluding any enhancements or other consecutive sentences. And then there's a third portion dealing with things like rehabilitative credits, good behavior credits, which will now be more available to certain classes of California inmates. So I roughly have the contours of the proposition correct there? That's, that's a fair assessment, sure. Okay. At the outset, we should regard that, that first portion, the juvenile criminal defendant portion, because it's it sort of, you know, as listeners would, would note from hearing it described, doesn't necessarily have a whole lot to do with the other two, although the, uh, different folks will argue on that point. But um, folks in, in your cohort that are generally against the, the, this proposition um, don't necessarily have too many qualms with that particular portion of it. Is that right? Uh, I think that's a, that's fair, um, and I, I would say you know I've I have been a prosecutor in my career. I also have done criminal defense, and I've been a law professor, and I've worked at the Supreme Court drafting judicial opinions. So it's not as if my um, perspective is, is is exclusively you know one side or the other. Um, there there are major concerns uh, really about the way this was drafted and presented, and to some extent um, it has to do with the process. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, initially uh, this was designed as an amendment to Penal Code 3051, and it was designed to see to it that uh, juveniles would not be tried in adult court. Um, initially it, it barred 15-year-olds from being tried in adult court no matter what, even if they were charged with murder, uh, and a little more flexibility for 16 and 17-year-olds based on the understandable concern that prison might be hardening juveniles rather than reforming them, and so we should have a separate uh, system for juveniles and not mix them in with adult hardened criminals. Uh, The problem was after it went through the review process, after it qualified for the ballot, uh, at that point it was then drastically altered it became uh, a constitutional amendment to the state, con- state constitution uh, and covered adults uh, and really uh, expanded the, the scope uh, of the measure. Um, and this did go up to the Supreme Court. It was challenged by the California District Attorneys Association uh, on the grounds that these changes were not, quote, reasonably germane to the initial um, measure and therefore it violated the elections code. Uh, the court, uh, in a six-to-one decision, uh, decided against that objection and allowed the measure to stand uh, on the ballot as it was in its final form. But it was very different, uh, and part of the concern was it seems to have been put together so hastily that there were some, some major problems with it. That change, that adding in of the second and third provisions dealing with parole consideration and rehabilitative credits to convicted inmates does differ somewhat from the original provision just pertaining to to juvenile defendants. As you say, the California Supreme Court did take a look at the challenge and what said that it was, in fact, reasonably germane to the original portion? Yes, it it, it permitted the the changed uh, measure to, to be on the ballot. And, and overruled the objections of the CDAA. Then getting into your concerns with the, the second and third portion of the proposition specifically, you mentioned in your piece that these will demolish the, the sentencing reforms that have come along over the past 10, 20 years and that have had, a, in your opinion, a significant positive impact on public safety. Um, 
you mentioned also that the proposition could could undermine uh, fundamental notions of, of democracy and justice. I'd like to sort of unpack both of those concerns, a public safety concern and a democracy and justice concern. But uh, perhaps on the, the first point, could you tell me a bit about the the sentencing reform measures that you describe and that you worry will, will become undone based on, on the passage of this proposition? Right. Well, um, California enacted its determinant sentencing law in 1977. Um, prior to that, sentences were indeterminate. They could be basically like three years to life, uh, and prison officials had almost untrammeled discretion in deciding when to release prisoners. The determinant sentencing law um, created more precise, objective sentencing uh, based on certain facts or certain offenses. There would be specific terms uh, and that uh, defendants would know what the penalty was for each offense. Um, Some of the sentences at the time, by today's standards, seem rather light. For example, the punishment for murder um, was, I think it was five to seven years, and you could serve only half of that and get out, uh, which people saw as being insufficient um, for, for the public safety concern. So uh, over time, more uh, sentencing provisions were added. Um, they're in several categories. One of them is what's often been called truth in sentencing. For example, mur- people convicted of murder must serve uh, the entire sentence, at least the, 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 the base term of it. For example, it's 15 to life or 25 to life, but before someone is eligible for parole, they must serve all 15 years. Um, violent criminals must serve 85% of their term. And there, there are other provisions like that that ensure that for more serious crimes, uh, the defendants serve um, a significant portion of their sentence. Uh, there's also been a greater move towards consecutive sentencing, that if somebody commits two crimes or a crime against two victims, then both can be punished. Uh, whereas earlier, um, there had been more of a trend towards concurrent sentencing or if there was consecutive sentencing, it would be only one-third of the second term. So, for example, if you did two offenses, each of which the term would be three years, if, convic- if, if you committed just one, if you did both, it could be four years. Three years for the first and then one-third of the three years for the second. So there was sort of a sentencing discount for additional crimes. There are enhancements. That is when uh, a crime is punished more severely due to Uh, certain aggravating facts. For example, the offender used a weapon, or he inflicted serious bodily injury, or he did it in connection with a street gang, uh, things like that, or he did it um, with a a hate motive, um, crimes that that aggravate uh, the offense and therefore uh, lead to enhanced punishment. And then finally, um, extra punishment for recidivism, in particular the three strikes law, that someone who had prior serious felony convictions would uh, receive a more serious sentence than a first-time offender. And these, um, this combination of sentencing reforms did uh, at least contribute to a significant drop in crime. Crime dropped um, about 64% from 1992 to 2014, violent crime. And that means that for every three violent crimes that were committed a generation ago, Barely one is committed today, uh, and that's a that's a really strong record of success. So I would be somewhat apprehensive about um, making drastic reforms to the sentencing scheme. And it seems that Prop 57 does just that. 
And maybe we could delve more specifically into each of those reforms, starting with, with the first part about the parole consideration hearings that a certain class mm-hmm. of inmates will now receive. So by the, by the terms of the provision, the potential uh, parolees are inmates convicted of, of nonviolent offenses who have served their, their base term. So what specifically, in your mind, is is potentially so problematic about this provision, I guess especially considering that um, it will only apply to, to nonviolent inmates? Okay, well, first of all, um, the measure does not define nonviolent. The penal code in section 667.5 subdivision C does, and it's a fairly narrow list of what is violent. It excludes crimes like uh, rape through intoxication, if someone gives someone a date rape drug, um, human sex trafficking, solicitation to commit murder, exploding a destructive device with intent to cause injury, uh, residential burglary, uh, many serious crimes, and any attempted crime other than murder. So that could be attempted rape, attempted carjacking. Um, so long as the crime is not actu- actually completed, it's not considered a violent crime. So these are uh, very serious offenses that, if the people who commit them are released early, uh, could uh, undermine public safety. That's the first concern. Uh, the second concern uh, is really uh, the vagueness uh, of these parole consideration hearings on uh, that provision. There's really nothing in there. It basically says that uh, the Department of Corrections uh, and Rehabilitation shall adopt regulations in furtherance of these provisions. And, and it pretty much delegates everything to them. Uh, so it's really not clear. It's hard for me to say how strictly or leniently uh, they will be applied. I know that, for example, in, in murder, you know, a lot of people talk about whether it should be death or life without parole. Uh, unless there's special circumstances, um, the people who are convicted of murder are, are really entitled to, to get out after their term, which can be as 15 years. And it's the prosecutor's burden to show they, they are still, there's a future dangerousness. Prop 57 doesn't provide any details. Uh, It seems that it's still the inmate's uh, burden to prove that he should get out, but it's not really clear, and it's not really clear what the criteria are. Um, At least with murder, as I said, you must look only at the the current state of that person. You can't consider, uh, however heinous the initial crime was, you you can only consider current facts, for example, you know, maybe the inmate slammed his tray at the prison cafeteria and he still has a temper, that could be considered, but the facts of the initial crime 15 years earlier uh, are not part of the consideration. It's not at all clear what will be involved here, uh, so it's very vague. Uh, but um, I guess perhaps the, the most philosophical concern uh, concerns the fact that a person's sentence contrary to the laws it's been since 1977, will no longer turn mostly on what they did. Currently, the law looks at objective factors. What was the crime? And for the same crime, did you use a weapon? Did you inflict an injury? How many victims were there? Uh, And that, put together, determines the sentence. Now, it will be based on what prison officials think is this person's future dangerousness, what, what they predict he will do in the future. Now, number one, I doubt they have uh, omniscience in this regard. 
Um, I know that Prop 47 was touted as as focused on on nonviolent uh, offenders and so forth. That was passed in 2014. And since then, rapes and homicides have jumped 10%, even though the long-term trend uh, has been downward. So it's, it's questionable um, how accurate these projections will be. But the larger concern is that people should be punished for what they did, not for what we think they will do in the future. It sounds like the, the Tom Cruise film, Minority Report. Uh, if you, I mean, if you have two defendants, A and B, and A is a first-time offender, uh, let's say attempts a rape against one victim, doesn't use a weapon, doesn't inflict an injury, he could actually end up serving a longer term than B, who um, commits a crime again, the same crime against two victims, does use a weapon, maybe does inflict an injury, and had a prior conviction for that crime. Uh, and that just seems fundamentally unjust that people who commit lesser crimes could end up having a longer sentence. And that's because as that first provision will sort of only look at the original base sentence and not take into account things like enhancements or other aggravations, correct? Right, right. All those, um, again, it, it's not clear how, how the law will be implemented. I would be lying to you if I, if I said it's going to go just like this because nobody really knows because it's not written into the text. So um, we're, we're really just speculating at this point. And it's possible that it will be applied very narrowly and prudently and will not lead to many problems. But um, there's the potential that it could be applied much more broadly. So as you kind of outlined, then there seems to be a bit of an over-inclusivity problem and then sort of a, a vagueness problem, the first being that the proposition is, is meant to target simply nonviolent inmates. But as you say, there are some nominally nonviolent crimes that are perpetrated, or certainly that sound violent. And so it's uncertain as to whether the Parole Consideration Board will take that into account, the fact that even though a crime isn't necessarily uh, deemed violent, it uh, still has the trappings of, of violence. Right. And again, once you use a deadly weapon or inflict a serious bodily injury, that would, to many lay people, characterize it as violent, even if the so-called base crime were not violent. Let's move on to the second portion of, or the, I guess the third portion of the proposition, the, the part that will now make more available rehabilitative good behavior credits to, to inmates. I, I believe you have a few different problems with this particular provision. What, uh, what are they? Well, for one thing, again, this is also very vague. It says the department shall have authority to award credits earned for good behavior and approved rehabilitative or educational achievements. Again, there's, you know, this is written into the state constitution, but it's, and, and uh, it overrides uh, every other uh, provision of law. I mean, that's part of it. Not with, it even says, notwithstanding any other provision of law, which means this supersedes everything else. So all the laws on the books must yield to this. So, that's, so again, there's that vagueness concern. But um, certainly a broader concern is that um, unlike the parole consideration question, there is no express limitation to nonviolent offenses. Um, so it's, so there's, a, there's a subdivision A, and then parole consideration is one. That's subdivision A1. It says any person convicted of a nonviolent felony offense shall be eligible for parole consideration. Then A1 has a further subdivision A, but no subdivision B, which is 
bizarre because whenever we we make subdivisions, if there's if there's an A, there's always at least a B, if not a C, also, uh, which really suggests this was put together in a very hasty manner. Um, but so that so parole consideration subdivision A one says any person convicted of a nonviolent felony offense, but subdivision A two has no such nonviolent limitation. Now the way statutes are construed, if the if if the prior subsection uh, refers to a limitation, there's no need to repeat it in every further subdivision. So, for example, if there's a like a student handbook for high school and it says all students shall arrive by 8 a.m. and then there's subdivisions ninth graders, tenth graders, eleventh graders, there's no need to repeat that 8 a.m. rule. But if there's a subdivision that says ninth graders are expected to arrive by 8 a.m. and they must take you know 10 credits and so on and so on, and then subdivision B says tenth graders must take certain classes and so on, and there's no 8 a.m. rule, then the implication is that the 8 a.m. rule applies to the ninth graders, but not to the 10th graders. Um, you know, it's the famous Latin maxim, expressio unius est exclusio alterius, but even if you don't know Latin, it's a fairly common sense understanding that if, that if there's a limitation in one provision, uh, and then in an equal provision, that limitation is absent, the implication is that limitation does not apply to that other subdivision. So there's the concern that even if it's true that the parole consideration provisions apply only to nonviolent offenses, the credit earning subdivision uh, applies across the board. And moreover, it doesn't even say to what extent. So for example, as I said, currently, if you're convicted of murder, you must serve 100%. If you're convicted of a violent offense, it's 85%. If you have a prior strike, it's, it's 80%. Um, this law seems to leave it open. It seems that murders, rape, I mean, it, it could drop even for people, you know, to what? Uh, could it be, you could you maybe need to serve only a third of your sentence from now on. Uh, it would seem that if prison officials wanted to do that, they have the authority based on uh, this constitutional amendment. I don't know that that was the intent of the drafters. I don't, again, I don't think they were trying to be deceptive because they've advertised this on the radio and so on, always saying this is for nonviolent offenders. Um, but if they're not being deceptive, then they're really careless with the drafting because it lends itself or it permits the interpretation that the credit earning subdivision applies across the board and not just to nonviolent offenders. I don't know that that was the intent, uh, and it's very possible that it would not be interpreted so broadly because most of the um, statements and advertisements in support of it have really highlighted the nonviolent limitation. So it's very possible that uh, courts will construe this as just a drafting oversight. Uh, and that the actual intent was to limit uh, the provisions to nonviolent offenders for both parole consideration and credit earning. But it's possible that they would construe it more broadly. Maybe to linger on that point just for a second, that's a fairly salient ambiguity. It seems like, as you, you say, it's, it seems uncertain as to whom this provision applies, nonviolent offenders only or, or anyone. But like you say, most proponents of the measure you know, in advertising it would clearly say it, it only applies to nonviolent inmates. So it, it does seem strange that that point could be still up in the air after the drafting and passage of the proposition. Well, again, I mean, most uh, 
laws, certainly amendments to the Constitution, if there's a subdivision A, there's a subdivision B. Um, I think Justice Chin, in his dissenting opinion in that case, uh, actually called this an embarrassment, that it's an embarrassment of having a California Constitution uh, containing such a subdivision. Uh, most people are aware, as he put it, that one cannot subdivide something into one part. Uh, so it was either um, intentional deception or, as I think is more likely, just carelessness. I'd like to delve into your, your philosophical concerns with this measure a little bit more. You mentioned that uh, Proposition 57 somewhat offends some fundamental notions of, of democracy. And Justice, I believe, um, principally the way it does that, as you said, is it introduces some vagueness or it could uh, tend to, to punish folks sort of somewhat erratically or unpredictably. What what are the, the biggest reasons why you think this proposition offends notions of democracy and justice? Well, again, I, I think that we we really have accepted the notion that we punish people when they do something wrong. Uh, we punish them for that wrongdoing. The more serious the wrongdoing, the more severe the punishment. So we punish rape more severely than shoplifting, and we punish murder more severely than rape. We punish someone who commits a crime against two victims uh, more severely than we punish someone who commits a crime against one person. We punish someone who commits a crime and inflicts an injury or uses a weapon more severely than we punish a person who doesn't, um, along, you know, along these lines. And this will replace it with um, punishment based on prison officials' projection of who will be more dangerous in the future. Um, you might be familiar, last month there was a case argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it was for someone who had committed a murder and was sentenced to death, uh, and it turned out that one of the considerations um, for why this person was considered dangerous and, and, and led to a, a death sentence was his race. And obviously the court was, was concerned that that's an improper consideration for determining future dangerousness. Um, but we don't know what the criteria are. We don't know how fair they are. And I would submit that no matter how accurate they are, there's just a fundamental unfairness of of punishing people who commit lesser or fewer crimes and punishing them with a longer term of imprisonment based on how likely they are to commit crimes in the future. Um, you know, if and when they commit crimes in the future, you punish them then. Um, but punishment should be based on what people have done in the past, not for what they're expected to do in the future. Um, that, that's a very troubling provision. It's also, I think, somewhat troubling in that um, the people, either through initiatives or uh, the legislature, have spoken pretty clearly as to which uh, offenses uh, deserve more punishment and which deserve less. Um, and these, these considerations change over time. Uh, in the past, crimes like drunk driving and domestic violence weren't seen um, to be the serious crimes that we see them as today. On the other hand, uh, for example, marijuana was, was considered to be uh, more serious now, and now it's, it's been uh, legalized. So, um, you know, the public will change its perception of which crimes require more serious punishment and which crimes require less. And the current system we have um, very precisely um, allocates punishment based on these multiple considerations. 
Um, but now um, it's just delegating everything to the decisions of prison officials behind closed doors, uh, and and it really returns to uh, a much older system where, as I said, you know, three years to life, and we don't know what happens. It's it's the jury isn't involved, the judge isn't involved. It all concerns these these parole boards, and um, it really excludes uh, the public, both in terms of determining what sentences should be and their role as jurors in um, determining uh, the convictions and so on. Uh, and it really excludes the public from that. Now, you can certainly say that, well, they voted for it, uh, so that was a democratic act, uh, and it is. Uh, I just hope that, um, I mean, I'm concerned that many people did not fully understand all its provisions. In fact, I know they didn't because it's impossible to know them. I mean, people who, who read every word uh, of the text uh, are still scratching their heads saying, how will this be applied? So certainly most voters, I mean, I, I know that I read this every word of it, but there are many propositions that I don't read every word of the text, and I'm probably a more informed than average voter. Uh, and so many people um, you know, are, are really relying on the ballot statements, and it's important that those uh, ballot statements are accurate and that courts consider them in, in determining uh, how this should be applied. And it should be applied consistent with its representation, which was that it applies to nonviolent offenders. Getting to some potential future legal challenges that this ballot measure will almost certainly meet. Um, you mentioned sloppy drafting, and, and there's uh, your point about some ambiguities in the text. What do you think are perhaps the, the most salient points at which legal challenges could be um, presented against this proposition? Well, it just, it just goes to how it will be imply, applied. Um, it seems that it is the inmate's burden to prove that he deserves early release. It's not the prosecution's burden to uh, prove that he must uh, continue to be there. Um, it does seem, however, that if, if nothing else, when we're talking about legal challenges, it does seem that I know it's, it's been justified as, as you know, emptying the prisons and, and preventing overcrowding, which seems to conflict with the explanation that it's, it's, it's not going to lead to the release of a lot of prisoners. It'll be applied narrowly. But it's also, you know, it, it could require a lot of resources for for prosecutors to, I mean, what, what role will they have in, in challenging this um, on an individual, you know, case-by-case basis? Uh, how difficult will that be? Uh, what kind of expenditure of public resources will be involved in that? Um, there, there are a lot of questions, and, and I guess more so is how, you know, what are the criteria that the department will establish? How will they apply them? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really up in the air. It's, it's very possible it will be applied narrowly and not lead to any major changes in public safety. But there's the potential um, that it might um, put a lot of dangerous people back on the streets. And as I say, you know, the, the crime rate dropped uh, over 22 years, 64%. And that's a tremendous reduction. Um, and I think that if we want to make any changes... It should be with a scalpel and not a sledgehammer, uh, and I'm concerned the 57 could be treated as the latter. Okay. 
um, well as with a lot of ballot propositions, the effect is still to still to be seen. For now, Mitchell Keeter of the Keeter Appellate Law Group in Beverly Hills. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. One more time, that was Mitchell Keeter, the Keeter Appellate Law Group, discussing Prop 57 and what he views as some significant flaws in the measure. Let's turn now to my conversation with Royal Oaks of Hinshaw and Culbertson. Very happy to welcome to the show now Mr. Royal Oaks, a partner with Hinshaw and Culbertson, who's got extensive trial and appellate experience in a number of areas, including apropos uh, insurance. Mr. Oaks, welcome to the program. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. So the, the case here, Nickerson v. Stonebridge, life insurance company uh, out of the second appellate district from last week deals with a, a few significant areas, including damages, punitive damages and compensatory damages and the, the relation between those. There's some sorts of constitutional limits upon upon that that relationship. And then sort of related to that is whether, you know, where attorney's fees come in, whether they should be included in the compensatory damages, such as to affect that constitutionally allowable relationship between punitives and compensatory damages. But before we get more deeply into those big issues, let's let's uh, back up slightly and talk about the, the underlying case here. The plaintiff here, I understand, Thomas Nickerson, was hospitalized after being seriously injured, and he stayed in the hospital for about three months, I believe. Uh, but then when he's released and files an insurance claim for his hospitalization, um, his insurance company, Stonebridge, says in his policy it will cover generally um, hospital expenses, hospital stays. They, uh, they offered to cover about 18 days of his three-month hospital stay. So what was the basis for uh, that denial of coverage? Yeah, the basis for denial of the coverage was that in the view of the insurance company, it just wasn't medically necessary for this man to be hospitalized. Uh, just the backstory is uh, this fellow had been uh, a Marine, so he was entitled to free medical care at the VA. Uh, back in the 90s, he was paralyzed in a snowmobile accident, so he was in a wheelchair. He was actually in his wheelchair when he actually accidentally stru- uh, struck the control of the wheelchair and, and the wheelchair lurched forward. So he fell down uh, in 2008 and he broke his leg. So he's taken to the VA hospital in Long Beach and he's treated, but he has complications. And, and so he was confined to the hospital for a period of time. He wound up staying in the hospital 109 days. So he submits his claim to the insurance company. And that's where the problem starts. Uh, the company decides, you know, we, we really don't think his confinement was medically necessary. He could have gone to a rehab center. He could have even gone home with a caregiver. So we're going to pay 18 days' worth and say no to the rest. And uh, he decided uh, to sue. And uh, the, the rest, of course, is history. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to that suit. He, he brings suit for an insurance bad faith claim. And the trial court directs a verdict against the defendant here. So uh, after that verdict is directed, tell me what, what happens, what sorts of fees are awarded by the jury, including compensatory damages, punitives, contract damages, uh, and attorney's fees. Yeah. And, and what happened in terms of the directed verdict angle, which of course is unusual, normally the jury would decide uh, whether or not there was a breach of contract. Sure. But here, the judge felt that this contract um, was not clear and conspicuous in terms of the provisions that should have alerted uh, the plaintiff to the fact that uh, his coverage might be limited on certain grounds in terms of whether they pay for a hospital stay or not. And because the judge felt that the contract was really flawed in that way, the contract took it away from the jury and said, look, I'm here to decide. Uh, I am deciding 
that there was a breach of contract, and uh, the judge decided the contract benefits were $31,500. So then it was left to the jury to resolve the rest of the case. And what the jury decided was that on top of the 31500 bucks in breach of contract benefits, that $35,000 in emotional distress damages uh, occurred, and on top of that, $19 million in punitive damages, which is, of course, the reason that this case has gotten so much uh, attention. And on top of that, the, of course, when you uh, do have a bad faith finding in California, the Brandt case from several years ago uh, allows the uh, plaintiff to win attorney's fees that were necessary to secure the benefits under the contract. And here, the parties I had actually just stipulated to agree that attorney's fees uh, in that regard were $12,500. So uh, those were the components of the uh, verdict by the jury. Okay, so uh, a lot of financial numbers there. Obviously, the most noteworthy and remarkable one is the $19 million figure. Of course, that gets the notice of the trial court judge who feels like it's not allowable uh, based on the, the relatively compared to the punitive the nature of the compensatory damages, only 35000 What does the, the trial court judge do uh, to the punitive damages? What's his view upon why they, they could not stand? Yeah, the trial court judge decided that the $19 million was basically out the window, and uh, it was cut down to $350,000, and that number wasn't picked out of the air. Uh, There's been a big debate over the last few decades as to just how much is okay when it comes to punitive damages in this kind of case. And the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on this, the BMW Gore case, the the California courts have weighed in, and the the Smokers case, that, that Bullock case, Pollock versus uh, Philip Morris. And the bottom line is that the courts seem to be kind of coalescing around the idea that, yeah, it's okay for punitives to exceed compensatory damages, but we're going to look at the ratio of punitives to compensatory to figure out just how big the punitive should be. And a single-digit ratio, in other words, 9 to 1 or 8 to 1 or 7 to 1, uh, is what most courts have come down to. Sometimes the courts just say, well, 10 to 1 is, is kind of the upper limit. There's, there's actually a, a big debate among the appellate uh, panels around the country. Some uh, appellate decisions say, you know, 1 to 1 is about right. That's you, you better have a good explanation for going above 1 to 1 or 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 of punitives to compensatory. But those are kind of outliers in general. Uh, the courts have pretty much agreed with the guidance by the U.S. Supreme Court of this 10 to 1 ratio. And here, because the compensatory damages of for emotional distress were $35,000, 10 times that is $350,000, which is the amount of punitives that the trial court judge said was permissible in this case, obviously a, an enormous reduction from $19 million. Maybe just as a, a bit of an aside by the, the by here with the the nature of punitive damages, obviously the name suggests they're meant to to punish. So um, take me sort of through the the logic behind needing to tie them to compensatory damages, which are obviously meant to compensate a plaintiff for for actual felt and identifiable harms. So if the idea of punitives is to punish, and a company like Stonebridge has a very very lucrative business model and uh, $350,000 perhaps won't actually punish them to the extent that they might change the, their practices. Um, is there, there's some, is there any, anything logically unsatisfying with that, that punitive damages won't really punish a defendant terribly much? 
you raise a very good question in terms of just how high is high, how, how big should punitive damages be in terms of deterrence. And of course, this kind of debate has been going on for a long time. A very talented plaintiff's lawyers who started back in the 80s and continued into the 90s saying to juries in so many words, look, folks, you've got to send a message. If you deliver X dollars in punitive, they're just going to laugh at you. You know how wealthy these folks are. So if you want to influence future conduct by bad corporations like these, you really have to hit them where they live. Well, the problem with that message is that the courts were receptive to the argument that there's a due process issue that it's not really fair to hit companies with an unlimited amount, uh, an amount that might reflect passion and prejudice by the jury. And so factors started to be considered. For example, just how reprehensible is this conduct? Maybe the courts of appeal would allow pretty gigantic punitive damage awards if it's just reprehensible off the charts. What about the question of the net worth or, or the, the value of the company? Uh, if you're going to wipe out a company, even if it was really reprehensible, then that doesn't really make sense. You, you're supposed to punish someone, not to destroy someone. Uh, and so that evolved into this notion of uh, the ratios. And so in general, uh, the courts are saying now to, uh, to the, the juries, to the trial judges, look, it, the upper limit pretty much is 10 to 1 of punitives to compensatory damages. Yeah, we're going to take into account reprehensibility factors, but, but that's sort of the guidepost that you start with. Okay, then obviously no accident. Here the punitives are reset by the trial court at 350000 10 times the compensatory damages, not including any of the attorney's fees that were awarded. Um, after that, figure is set by the trial court. Both sides appeal, obviously the defendant believing it to be still too high and the plaintiff believing it to be too low. Um, this same appellate court affirmed it previously, and then um, their decision was was taken up by the California Supreme Court, but I believe the court at that time uh, limited the issues, right? What, 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 uh, what specifically was the California Supreme Court taking a look at here? Yeah, when the California Supreme Court granted the petition for review to evaluate this case, they did it in a very narrow, limited way. Essentially, all they wanted to weigh in on was the question of how to compute compensatory damages. So when you get this ratio of punitives to compensatory, what exactly goes into compensatory? Well, the trial court had said, well, it's $35,000 of emotional distress. That's how we identify compensatory damages in this case. But the uh, California Supreme Court said, uh, you know what, um, attorney's fees should be included in that compensatory damages calculation. And so in that sense, they reversed the Court of Appeals' previous decision that had approved 350 grand as the punitives being 10 times the compensatory of 35,000. And so the case was remanded not to the trial court, but remanded to the Court of Appeal for further proceedings. And in that sense, there wasn't a whole lot, in a way, for the Court of Appeal to do the second time around. I mean, it could just whip out their calculator, do the math, bump up the punitives based on the 10 to 1 ratio rule with the compensatories moving up from $35,000, one-tenth of three hundred fifty grand, to $47,500, uh, bumping it up based on the addition of the attorney's fees. So, uh, but, but the Court of Appeal did more than that. They, they did, uh, on remand, uh, take a, a further look at the case. That's going to be my next question when, when a case has this particular sort of procedural posture and um, the case comes back down from the California Supreme Court, which only touched on a somewhat narrow issue. Do the parties believe that it's only that narrow issue then that's still sort of in play? Or in this particular case, 
the compensatory and punitive ratio question was not addressed by the California Supreme Court, but did the party still re-engage that question? Did the defense once again bring to bear the arguments that it was, was too high and the plaintiffs too low? Yeah, they did. They, in a way, the the, the case was, was refought uh, on remand, and the Court of Appeal did go through a, a pretty detailed evaluation of the various factors to consider. For example, reprehensibility. Uh, they got into the uh, the factors. Number one, you know, was there physical harm inflicted here, or was it just economic harm? And the Court of Appeal concluded, no, it wasn't physical harm. This is strictly an economic matter. So that was on the good side for the company in terms of reprehensibility. But unfortunately for the company, the other four factors, the Court of Appeal found that, yeah, this was reprehensible conduct. They found reckless disregard of health and safety. They they found that the victim was financially vulnerable. They found that this wasn't necessarily an isolated incident, that there had been other situations that the company was responsible for. And finally, they looked at the question of whether this was an accident as opposed to it being intentional. And and uh, bottom line is that they concluded that, yeah, on four of the five reprehensibility factors, uh, uh, they found that there was some level of reprehensibility, and, and therefore they didn't see a basis for overturning the jury's decision that, yes, punitive damages were appropriate in this case. As you say, they, they somewhat thoroughly go through the, the various sign points that lead courts along the path to a, a certain punitive damage figure deciding that the the indications here were that essentially the the highest amount of plaintiff or punitive damages that could be awarded were were due you know, a 10 to 1 ratio here's what they end up with the 475,000 figure obviously we've discussed a bit how that's regarded by many courts including the United States Supreme Court about the limit that the ratio can be 10 to one, could you talk about? You mentioned briefly a couple of the the specific precedents that that set that as the the general rule. Yeah, the the cases I mentioned before really are, are the main ones. The uh, United States Supreme Court in the uh, in the Gore uh, BMW case, um, uh, the State Farm case that the people followed a lot in recent years, the Bullock versus Philip Morris case. They all have what in common the idea that the court is struggling with how to make sure that somebody who has behaved by definition in, in the opinion of the jury in a reprehensible way and and it's appropriate to punish them how do you punish them consistent with the notion of due process uh, how do you avoid a situation where it's just an anything goes deal with the jury and thus the courts of appeal are constantly going to have to struggle with the idea of, well gee was this a result of passion and prejudice or not and so what they come up with in, in Philip Morris and, and Gore and so on are, are these standards, these general guideposts, and it involves reprehensibility, uh, the, the five factors I mentioned. Uh, it involves uh, the, the question of, uh, uh, of whether or not uh, the 10-to-1 uh, the ratio really is defensible and makes sense, and it's kind of a default setting. I, I think that the plaintiff who wants to justify uh, an award of more than 10-to-1 they have their work cut out for them. Now, for example, if the compensatory damages number for for whatever reason is really kind of puny, we're talking a few hundred or a few thousand bucks, and yet you, you have horrendous reprehensible conduct, that's the kind of situation where the courts uh, uh, you know, at the appellate level will say, you know what, a 10 to 1 is a nice uh, default setting, but it doesn't apply in, in every case. Uh, here, uh, it was appropriate to have much more than ten to one because you know the the denominator in your in your uh, fraction there was just so small. So sure. in a way, it's case by case, but in a way, uh, you've got these general uh, 
beacons, these, these guidepost cases uh, out of the U.S. And, and California Supreme Courts that guide uh, the trial courts in terms of uh, whether something is on a line or not. Sure. Okay, so sort of a, a soft cap, but uh, the potential there is it could be exceeded in, in certain extraordinary instances. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, the fact that the courts do attempt to have these soft caps, that's a good way to put it, uh, general guidelines, is kind of an answer to the argument by corporations that, well, there's something inherently unconstitutional about punitive damages. It's it's like a, a criminal fine. It's quasi-criminal in nature. It does violate due process. It's just so miasmic, the, the, the issue of the standards for punitive damages, malice, oppression, and fraud. If the jury is angry, they're going to use these as excuses to go wild and bankrupt companies. So what the courts have done is respond by saying, no, we're not going to knock out punitive damages entirely, but instead we're going to give these these guidelines. And, of course, the legislatures get involved, too, because uh, whereas California has a very uh, uh, active, thriving uh, uh, body of law in support of uh, bad faith and punitive damages, uh, it's not that way around the country. A lot of legislatures say, no, uh, we're not going to we're not going to have punitive damages at all. California really is at the forefront, and it's no surprise that uh, Bill Chernoff's firm uh, handled this Nickerson case uh, because he really pretty much invented bad faith back in the 70s with the Egan case. Um, because you know years ago you didn't have a bad faith a breach of contract was a breach of contract it wasn't a tort and it didn't matter whether it was in the insurance context or buying refrigerators or whatever. And so because of Bill Chernoff's uh, groundbreaking work back in the 70s, uh, they created this tort of, of bad faith that was enhanced by the availability of punitive damages. And, of course, the basis of treating the insurance uh, contract differently is the uh, acknowledgement by the appellate courts that there is something special and unique about the insurance relationship, that people have uh, great dependency and reliance on the availability of these benefits, and they're vulnerable and so on. So that has led in kind of a progressive way toward the development of, of, of a lot of pro-plaintiff uh, decisions in California in the last few decades that you don't see in a lot of other states. Then the next development here that's important to to regard is the the fact that in cases like this, um, compensatory damages, those Brandt fees, I'm sorry, attorney's fees can be included within the uh, the compensatory damage denominator, as you say, uh, when you're calculating that that ratio. Now, the Court of Appeals had previously reckoned with this case and had not included those fees in the compensatory damage amount. Um, why did it not do it there, and, and why uh, did the California Supreme Court instruct it to, to change that decision? What are sort of the competing arguments as to whether the attorney's fees should be included in that in that ratio? Yeah, it's a good question. I think essentially it was an unsettled matter. You know, you look at these issues and you scratch your head and you say, how could the courts not have resolved this definitively one way or the other? But it seems like you have that reaction about every week in your in your law practice. I think as a practical matter, courts tend to put off computing the attorney's fees in a bad faith case until the very end, partly because it could be a waste of time. You never know if the jury's going to come back and say, yeah, there was bad faith. Uh, if they do say, yeah, there was bad faith, then they uh, can, of course, figure out how much in Brandt fees or attorney's fees are, are awardable to the plaintiff. Uh, how much did it take to get those to get those contract benefits? Interestingly, Brandt fees are not supposed to be the attorney's fees that were expended to get 
compensatory damages like emotional distress or to get punitive damages. It's only the fees that were necessary to get the contract benefits. So uh, the fact that, that as a practical matter, the, the lawyers for both sides usually get together as, as they're approaching trial and say, okay, what are we going to do about the brand fees? Well, why don't we just have a stipulation? Well, you know, you know we don't want to have to fuss with deposing lawyers and looking over legal bills. Let's, let's just come up with a, a stipulation or, or, or we'll let the judge hash it out. We'll, we'll, we'll stipulate that the jury won't be fussing with the amount of the brand fees. We'll let the, the judge do it. That's, those are common practices. And in this case, the two sides actually agreed by themselves. They stipulated 12500 bucks is going to be the brand fee amount. But that stuff is sort of back-ended. And, and as a result, when the jury awarded the the $350 million, there was no brand fee component at all. Well, what the California Supreme Court is saying now is that, yeah, it's appropriate to include in that chunk of compensatory damages dollars here, the the $35,000 in emotional distress, it's, in, it's appropriate to include in that chunk the $12,500 in brand fees. And it's not a gigantic change in, in the law, but it's an important change in the law, not gigantic, for example, in this case, not an enormous difference between getting you know, 350 grand uh, in punitives 10 times uh, the compensatories as opposed to $470,000. It's certainly not chump change, but when you consider the difference between that and the $19 million the jury had in mind originally, it's, it's a gigantic drop. Is that then, I guess, sort of the, the most significant thing to take from this particular ruling? You have that. You also have, a, as you say, the, the fairly in-depth treatment of how punitive damages can be awarded, the, the reckoning with the, the maximum allowable amount. What, what are sort of the, the most important things an appellate attorney or a practicing trial attorney should know uh, about, about this particular ruling? Well, I think that the, the first takeaway, of course, is the basic idea that you've got to put the attorney's fees under the Brandt Doctrine as part of the compensatory damages bucket. And, and so that's going to affect how lawyers approach this figure to, uh, as, you, as you get close to trial, the plaintiff's lawyer is going to want to make sure that the jury uh, takes that into consideration. And so it's actually going to lengthen trials a little bit. Uh, the second thing, though, is just a, a reminder by this court that uh, they're going to, the appellate courts are going to take a careful look at uh, the nature of the claims handling and to the extent there is some suggestion uh, that there, uh, there, there was an unfairness to the handling of the, of the case, then those that's going to be... Uh, totaled up on the side of evidence for bad faith in this five-factor reprehensibility test. Okay, well, uh, certainly an interesting ruling in one with uh, some impacts still to, still to be seen. Mr. Royal Oaks, of partner with Hinshaw and Culberson, thanks very much for being on the podcast to talk about it. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And with that... Our program for November 18th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mitchell Keeter, the Keeter Appellate Law, and Mr. Royal Oaks of Hinshaw and Culbertson. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. And thanks go out to my production staff here, including Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, Nicholas Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.